Hello, and welcome to Fangraphs Audio, episode 1009. We begin with Jay Jaffe welcoming Ryan Thibodeau to talk about the Hall of Fame election announcement this week, which included and was limited to Scott Rowland. Ryan is best known for leading the team that manages the Hall of Fame ballot tracker for the past decade, and somehow he and Jay had never chatted on a podcast before. The duo discussed Roland's election and their whirlwind day leading up to it, as well as what compelled Ryan to begin this project and if he ever hears from the candidates. Jay and Ryan also look ahead to next year and talk about how they are starting to miss the presence of the honorary token vote. If there was one thing that I that I sort of lament about the work that we do is there used to be a lot more candidates that would get four, five, six votes for right. for various reasons. And it's so rare now. I think it was only six candidates that got one vote and then seven or so that got none. And I, yeah. I think that's almost entirely because people don't want to be yelled at on Twitter for like casting, you know, they, they do a seven player ballot and they wish they could give Matt Cain a vote, but yeah. they don't, they don't want the Twitter reaction to it. And I, I, that's sad to me. In the second half, David Lorelo welcomes Quinn Priester, 22 year old right-handed pitching prospect for the Pittsburgh Pirates. We hear how things have changed since David first interviewed Quinn right out of the draft and how training in Arizona this offseason has gone for him. Quinn also tells us about changing his approach to staying games longer, how he feels about his sinker and curveball, playing with first overall pick Henry Davis, and who he is most looking forward to facing when he reaches the major leagues. Growing up a Cubs fan, that 2016 team holds like a very special place in, in my baseball memories. And so Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo are like those guys who I want to face because that's who I grew up watching and that's who I grew up thinking they were the best. So like those two guys stick out. Javi Baez sticks out to where it's like, shoot, Wilson Contreras. Like I've, I've grew up watching these guys. These are the guys that all my friends, you know, love too. So I really want a chance at them and, and, you know, a chance to beat them. So it's, uh, those are the guys that I think about whenever, you know, I close my eyes or and, and that's how it's been, you know, since I was 14, 15. But before we get to these great interviews, I must issue my weekly reminder for you to visit the Fangraphs.com shop. Not only can you get yourself some official Fangraphs swag, but it's also the place to pick up a Fangraphs ad frame membership. Good for yourself or as a gift for a friend. Not only can you browse the website at blazing fast ad free speeds, but your membership provides the incredibly helpful support we need to do everything we do, from the daily articles to the leaderboards to the roster resource pages to the projections to the podcast to just plain keeping the lights on. We couldn't do it without you. Thank you. Enjoy the show. This is Jay Jaffe for Fangraphs Audio. On Tuesday evening, the Hall of Fame announced the official results of the 2023 Baseball Writers Association of America balloting, and for all of the buildup leading to that moment, the results actually came as a surprise to many, including this scribe. Based on the trends observed at Ryan Thibodeau's indispensable ballot tracker, it appeared that the writers would pitch their second shutout in three years. With about 24 hours to go, forecaster Jason Sardell's probabilistic model, the most accurate in the industry for the previous four years, showed Scott Rowland with just a 9% chance of election and Todd Helton with a 4% chance. As Tuesday afternoon went on, however, more voters released their ballots, and as those of us with eyes glued to the proceedings refreshed the tracker's breakdowns, not to be confused with our own psychological breakdowns, Rowland's chances began to improve. Even so, by about 6 p.m. Eastern, Sardell's estimate was still at just 24%. But when Hall President Josh Rowlich opened the envelope, we learned that the 3-to-1 shot had come in. Scott Rowland, Hall of Famer. He cleared the 75% threshold by just five votes. 
The whole sequence of events offered a strong counter-argument to the notion that voters publishing their ballots, an activity that the Hall of Fame has tolerated and even encouraged without officially endorsing, ruins the suspense of the election announcement. On the contrary, knowing only what about 53% of the ballots told us left room for one of the great Election Day surprises of recent years. Perhaps only the 2020 election of Larry Walker in his 10th year and by just six votes could match it. Over the past decade, Thibodeau's ballot tracker has become an essential part of the Hall of Fame election cycle. Ryan heads a diligent and tireless team that offers numerous insights into voter behavior and patterns and graciously provides those of us attuned to the cycle with help when we need it. In the wake of the results, I figured it was high time that the two of us, who live on opposite coasts and have never spoken before despite both carving our niches in the election process, finally had a chat. Ryan, who likes to disappear from the public eye to take a well-deserved break once the results are announced, graciously agreed. So, without further ado, we bring in Ryan Thibodeau, the master of the tracker himself. Ryan, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Jay. I'm glad you're here. I, I was, we were talking about this just before the uh, just before the, the recording started, and you said this is the third podcast you've ever done, and you've never done one with Fangraphs, and that we've never spoken before, and all those things just blow my mind, especially on a day where I can't shut up. <laughs> <laughs> one correction: I did do a podcast with uh, with Kevin Goldstein last year, a Fangraphs okay. podcast. So it's my second Fangraphs. Okay. And actually, my first one was effectively wild, but I don't think it was uh, at Fangraphs at the time. I could be remembering that wrong. So okay. anyway, yeah. All right. Well, glad to have you early on in your podcasting career. And it's it's great to talk to you here, given that, as you said before we started, we've both been sort of, you know, plowing the same field here for, for the last 10 years in parallel. Was the 2013 or 14 your first year running the tracker? Doing it kind of on my own version of the tracker, uh, this was the 10th year, so okay, um, yeah, been a decade. Wow, that's awesome. And, and yeah, I mean, it's just, I was hitting refresh every like three minutes yesterday uh, <laughs> down the stretch because I had left myself with a very light schedule before the, before the election. And that was the first thing that's, that struck me about, about yesterday in general was just that you know, there are people who complain that the pre-publication of ballots before the announcements diminishes the suspense. But, you know, when you've got only about half of the ballots known when the envelope is open, there's still a lot of room for suspense. And yesterday was, I think, as suspenseful as any I can remember, because we all we all thought there was a very good chance of a shutout there. And even you know, Jason Sardell's final odds uh, just moments before the uh, announcement had I think a 24% chance at most uh, of us, of us getting uh, somebody in. So what was that like on your end when you know, you're, you're uh, watching ballots come in and you're, and you're tallying, you know, the responses? Yeah. I mean, the day, the day of the announcement is always crazy. And especially the last hour, you know, we, we feel like our job is to like get the most number of ballots we can so in recent years, I've done a thing. I used to just kind of shamelessly tweet at, at voters all the time, anytime, you know, asking them to share their ballot. I don't do that hardly at all anymore, except for the last 24 hours. Uh -huh. So I'm basically tweeting at people, DMing people, emailing, just trying to get as many ballots as we can right at the end, because I know, I know that most of them won't do it before the last minute. So it, it's just a, kind of a wild, fun day for me. And, you know, yesterday we at the last minute, kind of right at three o'clock, I got somebody to share an anonymous ballot that we totally weren't expecting to be able to get. So, it, you know, it's a lot of fun. And then 
And then you'd take three or four breaths and Josh Rawitz walks to the stage and I'm, you know, just trying to catch my breath. So uh, it's a really fun day. You know, like you said, we all follow uh, Jason Sardell's projections really closely. I was pretty pessimistic about anybody uh, getting in. You know, Anthony and Adam, you know, had their own, you know, the guys who helped me with the project had their level of optimism and pessimism. We basically just didn't know what was going to happen. And uh, so, yeah, that was probably comparable to, to the Larry Walker uh, election, just the most suspense uh, that we could imagine. It was it was a lot of fun. Yeah. When Josh announced that we had somebody that was Scott Rowland, I yelled so loud, I, I thought I killed a house plant. <laughs> <It's> just, <laughs> you know, somebody who, who has been stumping for Roland since, since he hit the ballot. Just, you know, incredible elation and relief here just to see, you know, one of these guys that I've championed get in and, and uh, you know, to have followed his progress and, you know, made up, you know, I had yesterday I was I was doing the math behind the scenes. Well, if he's got this many ballots here and they're expecting this many here, solve for X, what does he have to have on the, you know, on the private ballots? And I was updating that, updating that. I was like, he only needs 69% on the private ballots here. Mm-hmm. And yeah. just like, you know, just doing stuff like that. It was, it was uh, right. somewhere between interesting and, and obsessive. <laughs> <laughs> sure. Sure. On my end. To me, it, it felt for two months that he was just not quite getting the, the flips that he needed. He'd get one here and there. And I think we ended yeah. up with 11 and, but it just never felt like a wave happening for him. And then on, you know, the day before the last day, uh, one voter revealed his ballot and, and dropped Roland. He voted for him last year, but not this year. And, <sighs> I, I it felt like a like a dagger to the candidacy to me. I I kind of I thought like well okay we're gonna you know have three three guys somewhere above seventy percent close to seventy percent and that's gonna be what it is. But nobody's gonna get seventy five. So yeah, just a total roller coasters. Like I said, a lot of fun. Yeah, I'm amazed in in looking back at just how sophisticated this whole operation has gotten here. I mean, you've got. Below each candidate, you've got like 20 something lines here of, you know, like breaking down numbers and percentages and, and, you know, pre-election results, post-election results, differentials, lost from returning voters, net, you know, like first time vote. It's just, it's all, I mean, it's such an incredible tool to look back on and just, you know, and, and, because you've organized the data in so many ways. How many one-player ballots do we have? How many blank ballots do we have? Things like that. Do you ever, like, how often is it you come up with a new a new th- feature to add here? Um, and is it usually f- coming from you, or is it somebody, you know, bringing something like the idea of the ballot twins or or the um, you know, feature features like that into this? Yeah, it's it's almost never me. Um, my one good idea that I I think I've ever had uh, with this project is uh, seven or eight years ago when I when I decided to start tracking the gained and lost votes. Um, uh-huh. And you know, green cell if it's a gained vote, red cell right. if it's a lost vote, and that that kind of changed the game as far as you know what the what the tracker could do and you know leading up to each announcement so so i'll I'll take credit for that one Uh, almost everything else that you see is is somebody else's idea somebody's good idea that i usually need 
help implementing. I'm, you know, it's a it's a massive Excel spreadsheet, and I am not a master Excel spreadsheet uh, user, but I have a lot of people helping me. Of course, um, you know, you mentioned the the Ballot Twins. That's Anthony Calamus, um, uh-huh. one of the one of the tracker team guys. That that's a really cool project where you just get to see like which voters have the same ballots as each other. Uh, I think you had a couple of twins yourself this year. Adam Dorr, the other tracker team guy that helps me uh, a ton, does a, a kind of a flip rate sheet yeah, every year. That's the other uh, one. I was, trying, I was at the tip of my tongue. I was trying to remember what, what, what to call it. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he tracks, you know, if if Helton is, is plus 15 through this amount of votes, you know, what's it look like he's going to end up as, you know, if that if that continues. Super fascinating to watch along the way. And then everything on the sheet too. Um, somebody suggest—I I don't even remember who it was. The one new feature this year is is tracking the the gained and lost votes on the pre-announcement ballots versus uh-huh. the gained and lost votes on the post-announcement ballots. Oh boy! Um, okay. So uh, we we've got that implemented, and we went back and did it for the last twelve years or whatever too. Oh my god! Uh-huh. <laughs> So, you know, there's a, and those are the kind of fun things we do in the kind of early part of the season when, you know, there's maybe a ballot or two a day, but it's, it's kind of slow and and we're just waiting around. And so we try to have some fun with it. Yeah, no, it's, it's, it's amazing. And there've been times I know that I've gone, I've, I've maybe talked to somebody and then I've gone back and looked to see, well, who did you vote for, you know, or, or, or whatever, like just the amount of information about each of us that's, that's in here. You've got, you know, 10 years of voting data of, I don't know, Pete, just I'm looking at the top cell here, Pete Abraham, uh, or whatever. The idea that, I mean, I, I, I went back one year and looked back at my own virtual ballots and then my actual ballots and I put together my own like inventory of who I voted for. I wanted to remember because mm-hmm. I knew like, for example, there were years that I didn't have room for Larry Walker for as much as I supported him. But like the idea that you could, you could, you know, in, at least in theory, do this with everybody. Although, you know, getting it out of Excel, and especially when you've got all these things horizontally, and you got to sort it, hor- you know, mm-hmm. it just it, it doesn't it doesn't sort the same way as it does when you're when you're working vertically. Sure. But it's a, it, it's a marvel. What compelled you in the first place to take this over? Because I know it was it was such a loose thing. I know like there was one. Uh, it was mostly at the Baseball Think Factory, right? That Darren Viola was doing and. And then uh, uh, Leo, and yeah. I can't remember if there were two separate efforts or if that was that was a single effort or that was yeah it was uh, Darren at Baseball Think Factory had the gizmo every year where he would round up the ballots and basically just have a running leaderboard, uh, right. so he didn't post individual ballots but you could you know I, I would just refresh that page fifty times a day um, every year and then Leo Kitty had the the first version of the actual ballot tracker that uh-huh. she put together and did did for four or five years. And I got into it because I, I grew up in Houston. I was a big Astros fan growing up. I, I basically thought of Jeff Bagwell as a first ballot Hall oh, of right. Famer. Mm-hmm. And, and when that didn't happen, I just started paying more and more attention every year as I got sort of angrier and angrier about Jeff Bagwell not being in the Hall of Fame to the point where I, I started trying to basically help Darren right. Leo and Leo Kitty to, to round up ballots and email voters and and so that's how it started. And then I, you know, kind of started my own, my own version of the ballot tracker and it, it just kind of stuck. Yeah. Do you find a lot of resistance at this point when like you ask somebody for a ballot or is everybody like, know that, you know, know to expect that this is going to be, you know, something they're, they're going to, you know, he's going to come and knock and 
Yeah, I definitely sense that these days. I don't I don't get a lot of angry replies anymore. Not that I ever did. That was actually one of the things that kind of kept me going is in the beginning, I expected to ask for somebody's ballot and then to be, you know, told off uh, repeatedly. But it, it was just very rare that that happened. So and the amount of times that somebody would reply, sure, here you go. You know, it was it was just exciting back in the early days. So yeah, so I, I you know just kind of kept going with it, and and it it grew over time, and then as you know with the with the gain and loss votes, and uh, just a little bit more attention to it, uh, MLB Network was kind of early to, you know, highlight some of what we were doing, so it just became bigger and bigger. Yeah, that's cool. I, I and I certainly you know I I can identify the with the uh, you know taking up a, a given player's cause and uh, you know building building an enterprise out of that. I mean, I think, I, you know, for me, it was uh, starting with uh, Burt Blylevin and Ron Santo back in the day, writing, you know, mm-hmm. discovering how out of whack their jaws uh, was with, um, you know, how, how much it stood out relative to the other players on their various ballots. Like, my God, can't you people see this guy has to be in? What the hell are you doing? And, and wait, there's more of these guys. And, you know, over time we've seen, you know, a lot of them get in and it's, 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 uh, the landscape has changed. Yeah. And, and yeah, back, back then, you know, I was, I was reading your work, Baseball Prospectus and Rich Letterer, you know, I used to yeah. read, read him speaking of, uh, of Bly Levin. Yeah. So yeah, I, you know, I kind of landed on that side of just wanting all the data, wanting to, to really to dive deep on things. And, um, that was certainly part of, part of the start of the, the tracker as well. Uh, do you ever, do you ever actually hear from any of the candidates a few, yeah. Um, there are there are a couple of candidates now who are paying close attention. I'll say, <laughs> um, uh-huh. I've had you know some brief DM conversations with some candidates. Larry Walker followed me the year he was elected, and I I didn't really talk to him at all during that whole time, but I sent him a congratulatory message uh-huh. afterwards, and he was he sent a very nice message back. So that was fun. Uh-huh. That's nice. Um, yeah, you know, Billy Wagner and Andrew Jones follow the process pretty closely. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I've had, there was a candidate a few years ago who ended up making the Hall of Fame, but his dad wanted me to call him to explain what the numbers on the tracker meant. So that was one of like the most fun things I've ever done oh, wow. is, is talk to a, I, I won't name him cause I don't have, yeah, I don't have permission fair. to, that's, but that's fine. But it was a totally delightful conversation. So occasionally it happens. I try not to, I don't want to insert myself into part of it too, is that like as much as I feel the ups and downs of this process, I can't imagine what it's like for them uh, if they yeah. are paying attention. So I don't want to, you know, I feel awkward trying to reach out or trying to say anything. So, yeah. Yeah. I think there's, you know, there's only a few players, candidates that I know of that have you know, followed me directly. Billy Wagner's one of them. You know, I occasionally, I like Jared Weaver started following me after I wrote his, his one and done piece this year. He didn't get a single vote, <laughs> but you know, I, I really enjoyed writing about him. I've, you know, and I, I've, uh, uh, I've come to greatly appreciate that process and have, and, and having that, uh, uh, that little kind of cool down time uh, after January 1st, where I get to write two or 3,000 words and there's absolutely nothing electorally at stake. Just It's just a giant remember some guys yeah. cavalcade. And I was so touched that Jared Weaver started following me. Now, God knows, God help him. If you if see the garbage <laughs> that goes through my Twitter feed, um, you know, it's, uh, yeah, he's, in, he's in for a rude surprise. But, you know, for somebody, 
you know, like a Wagner who does have a chance, it might, it might, it might be, it might be different. Right. Well, at, you know, as you mentioned, Jared, we, I think if I, if there was one thing that I, that I sort of lament about the work that we do is there used to be a lot more candidates that would get four five, six votes for, right. for various reasons. And it's so rare now. I think it was only six candidates that got one vote and then seven or so that got none. And I, yeah. I think that's almost entirely because people don't want to be yelled at on Twitter for like casting, you know, they, they do a seven player ballot and they wish they could give Matt Cain a vote, but yeah. they don't, they don't want the Twitter reaction to it. And I, I, that's sad to me. Yeah. I, you know, I, it, it used to be, a, you know, it, I think it used to be a pretty common custom for, you know, for, for voters, especially what, you know, in the days when you're, you're maybe filling out three to five names to, to toss it, you know, toss an extra name there, to tip of the cap. I remember one year, you know, but I mean, as the ballots have gotten, you know, more crowded and, and really, I think the, the time that you started doing this, I mean, the 2014 ballot is in, insane. Mm-hmm. Right. 14 guys met the Jaws standard. 17 of them had 50 Jaws or higher mm-hmm. uh, or 40 Jaws for a catcher. I mean, that's just, that is like, you know, content's under pressure. Um, <laughs> right, right. And Maybe less defensible to do a token vote back then. Right. And if you're not, you know, if, if, if and the token votes are, are just you know, it could be kind of exasperating, you know, understand, you know, I mean, even like somebody voting strategically, like mm-hmm. was it the one that, that left uh, Greg Maddox off that year, mm-hmm. or maybe it was Maddox and Pedro. It I was Pedro. I, yeah. Pedro for sure. I don't, there was another one. I, it might've been Maddox. Yeah. Yeah. It's just like, I mean, just the amount of, of, of rancor that was unleashed, at, you know, and I, you know, I like that we're, the things have cooled down enough that you could, you know, that there are people who, who throw the token vote in there. T.R. Sullivan is always good for that. Right. Um, last year, he gave A.J. Pruszynski a vote <laughs> and had a, had, a, had, had the, the great quote from Ozzie Guillen. You know, if you played against him, you hated him. If you played with him, you hated him just a little <laughs> bit less. <laughs> he quoted that in his, uh, in, in his piece. And then this year, he gave R.A. Dickey and, and Houston Street uh, their 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 lone votes and I, you know, I in in my candidate by candidate write up here that uh, as we speak here uh, late Wednesday night I am uh, uh, nearing the end of but we'll be up at, at Fangrass before this uh, podcast hits the street I did sort of do a bit of a thought exercise uh, because I only voted for seven guys this year. And I thought about, well, you know, what if I did throw a token vote here? And it was mostly after the fact, after I really immersed myself in the one and done process and, you know, rediscovered the impact on fan graph stats in particular that Matt Cain had right. with his pop-ups and, and calculating F4 or, you know, just uh, you know appreciating, you know, the journey that some of these guys went on or, or like, you know, lamenting the fact that R.A. Dickey is you know, probably the last great knuckleballer in major league mm-hmm. history because the, the pitch is just, uh, near, you know, a nearly extinct species. And, you know, I thought, th- then I thought though, why am I not doing this to somebody who's maybe just more of a fringe candidate like Andy sure. Pettit, who, you know, meant something emotionally to me as a fan and isn't quite there, you know, in terms of looking at my system, but I keep looking and keep hoping I, I, that I'm going to discover a reason to vote for him. But there's there's still that vestigial fan connection to him from you know the the period before I I had to really immerse myself in this from professional aspect. And I think about that and like right. think that it would look weird if I voted for Ari Dickey but not Andy Pettit uh, yeah. or something just to use an example. And mm-hmm. and so. I kind of left it there, but and Jeff Kent was another one too. And mm-hmm. I spent nine years, you know, voting, you know, voting or not supporting Jeff Kent. And 
wondered like how it would look if I gave him a, a, a tenth year vote. It's like, you know, not necessarily, uh, a, a, you know, a, and I've changed my mind on you more. Like, you know, when you see soccer players trade jerseys at the end of the game as a mark of respect, it's like, okay, yeah, you know, we battled, we battled for 10 years and you're not going to get in here, but I do respect the fact that you stayed on the ballot. I do respect the fact that you had a great career and you're probably going to Cooperstown, you know, without my support anyway, via the committee or whatever. But right. I thought about that. So I don't know. What else did I want to mention here? As, uh, as we speak here, I'm on my eighth media spot of the day. <laughs> um, I cannot believe how much stuff I committed to. Uh, multiple podcasts for which I forgot the timing of the recording, even a TV spot, uh, rare, rarely cited on MLB Network. They won't let me in the building anymore, but they I will. saw that. <laughs> they will let me dial in, so that was fun. But it's, it's such a whirlwind. So as the, as the circus leaves town here uh, for this year from the standpoint of, of gathering ballots, and I guess it's not really done because you've got for two weeks from now, you're going to get the the uh, uh, the full BBWAA mother load of the people who didn't want their ballot published pre-election but are willing to have it published post-election. Looking to next year, what do you see happening and what are you looking forward to? Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, I think we have the one of the best uh, crops of, of first-time candidates coming next year with uh, Adrian Beltre and Joe Maurer and Chase Utley, uh, David Wright. You know, we haven't had a, a group that solid in a, in a few years here, and it'll be interesting to see. You know, a lot of people when they see when they saw uh, where Todd Hilton finished this year, uh, where Billy Wagner finished this year, they kind of they especially what we've seen recently with candidates kind of making these big jumps to get elected. Uh, it kind of feels like they're probably shoe-ins next year. But I think that strong crop of, of rookie candidates has the potential to throw some some wrenches into things. Uh, they're just, those guys are going to take up a lot of vote share. And yeah. um, I, I could see a, a scenario where, where, you know, Billy Wagner picks up 5%, but not 7% and mm -hmm. has to wait till the 10th year. Helton is, is so close. It's hard to see him not getting the last little bit, but then just how well will those guys do? I think, I don't know if I've seen anyone who thinks that, that Adrian Beltre is not a slam dunk first ballot guy might, might threaten, you know, the upper 90%. But then Joe Maurer, there seems to be, you know, we, we noticed, we thought he'd have pretty strong support, didn't know if he was a first ballot guy, but then a couple of the the sort of tiny hall voters uh, were making noises about voting for him next year, which makes us, yeah, makes us think maybe he's got kind of broader support than, than just, is he going to get the 75 over or under? Yeah. We'll see that it's very anecdotal, but it should be interesting. Yeah. Mauer, boy, I got into it. Uh, this is Wednesday afternoon. I got into it a little bit with, uh, on the subject of Mauer as always seems to happen to me. He's, he's seventh in jaws, fifth in seven year peak. All of that comes from his time as a catcher. You know, it's a it's like a guy who 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 finishes the test early and goes home and 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 gets the you know gets one of the highest scores and like why are you penalizing him for getting that extra hour of class out you know hour outside class and it's going to be the same for Buster Posey in a few years too. Mm -hmm. There are even some people that I that I respect, you know, on the, with the, among the stat heads who are like I'm not so sure he's a first ballot guy. It's like mm -hmm. really, <laughs> I mean, really. <laughs> You know, I know you know what wins above replacement is. You know, I know you know what pitch framing data is. I know you know you know how to value these guys. And, and I, was, I was taken aback. So there is a split, and it, and, and as with uh, I don't know, Scott Rowland's actually a good example. There's a certain number of of fans uh, from the teams that they played for who seem actually taken aback at the notion that they're the Hall of Famer because somehow. 
they let them down. I mean, like Phillies fans seemed outraged yesterday that right. Scott Rowland made the Hall of Fame, and there's a right. certain segment of Twins fans that's just irate because you know the that franchise throws money around, you know, nickels around like they're manhole covers, and and you know the fact that uh, you know Joe Maurer's contract did not pan out the way that his uh, inexpensive years did mm-hmm. just drives them batty. So, <laughs> uh, you know, it's like. I kind of enjoy watching those people get wound up, I have to admit. Um, <laughs> because in the end, I know that these guys are great ball players and they're going to probably wind up in the Hall of Fame one way or another. And watching watching these people have to deal with that cognitive dissonance sometimes could be kind of fun. Yeah, I don't, I don't know, Jay. My, my least favorite kind of account is the, the person who who is actively campaigning against a single candidate, like yeah, the no, entire I get, two. <laughs> I, I get that. And, I, and I've and i really, you know, as I've gotten more stature within this industry for the work that I do, I've st- like, I don't think I would be campaigning against Jack Morris mm-hmm. with the strength that I did, you know, 10 years ago. I think my I, it's sort of a live and let live type of situation here. It's like, no, here are the guys that I think are the top ten. You know, if Jeff Kent or Fred McGriff gets in with you know without my support, hey, good good for them. I just want to make sure that the guys that 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 my system recognizes are getting you know getting into and and you know thankfully that that that's been the case. Oh, the one you the one you just named though, David Wright, mm. a guy who was on a Hall of Fame path, but it, it's I cannot believe. That we're coming up on enough time that he's going to be eligible for the Hall of Fame. He had that two-game cameo in 2018, which was my first year at Fangraphs. And I really got into it with some Mets fans in the comments. I mean, Mets fans always... You know, have have been. I I think they they assume that I hate their team, which you know is not. A, I don't think is an accurate assumption at all. Mm-hmm. Uh, but there were some who were just you know. I just thought, hey, they really got to figure out a way to get this guy back on the field. That was 2018. That was my rookie year at Fangraph. No, mm-hmm. that was not a rookie anymore. But like, I cannot believe how much time has passed here. I'm 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 at the five year mark for the point when I joined Fangraphs here coming up very yeah. soon so it's tough to believe how time flies and i know as we watch these candidacies go by it's you know it's it's you blink and it's a decade you've been running the tracker for a decade i've been i'm now two decades into analyzing hall of fame ballots and and waited out my whole 10 year you know waiting period for to get a ballot and i passed that you know just wondering if i was ever going to make it through, you know through that time it's just, it's, it's just wild time time marches on <laughs> It's amazing. I, one of my strongest memories is, uh, I guess it would be the 2016 cycle right around Christmas. Uh, my first son was being born. I was uh-huh. uh, in the hospital sending DMs to to Trent Rosecrans, um, <laughs> you know, about the Hall of Fame while we were just kind of waiting around. And so, right. uh, and and that feels like yesterday and that was uh, over seven years ago. So yeah, it's, it, it goes fast. Yeah, I mean, I was holding up my my infant daughter in one arm and the Cooperstown casebook in the other in 2017, and she's now just about six and a half years old and watching my TV spot and and wondering, (laughs) you know, what the hell it is daddy's talking about here. Anyway, Ryan, it's so great to finally talk to you about this stuff, and I and uh, I know we could probably go on and on here if we if we both had more sleep underneath us here, but uh, it being what it is, the day after the Hall of Fame election, we're probably best at uh, letting the bullpen take over here. <laughs> but uh, thank you so much for for making the time to come on, and uh, I hope we can do this again another time under more relaxed circumstances and uh, that sometime we get to meet at a ballpark or some, something like that and shake hands in, in, in person. I hope so. It's, a, it's an honor and a pleasure to talk to you. Thanks, Jay. All right. Sure thing, Ryan. For Fangraphs Audio, I'm Jay Jaffe. 
Hey, baseball fans, this is David Lorla. My guest this week is Quinn Priester, a 22-year-old pitching prospect in the Pittsburgh Pirates organization. Quinn, thanks for coming on to Fangraphs Audio. Thanks for having me. I'm excited. Uh, Should be fun. I hope this is fun. This is your first time on the podcast, of course, but it's actually the third time I've interviewed you. The first was at the end of the 2019 season, which was just a few months after you were drafted out of high school. So, you know, does that seem, Quinn, like a long time ago or really more like it was just yesterday? It sounds weird, but both. So, like, I think about it and it's like, holy crap, I've already been in the organization for four years now. And and it feels like the blink of an eye, but I also then think about, you know, the the places I've been, you know, from the FCL to West Virginia to Greensboro to Altoona and finishing the year in Indy. It, it feels like it's been like a longer journey for sure. So it's both. It's It's been so much fun that it's felt quick, but it's definitely, you know, been work, working up through the system that, that has felt, uh, you know, like like the minor leagues and, and it's been a lot of fun and uh, you know, we're, we're getting close and, and we're really close this year. So going to keep playing good and see what happens. And as we're speaking, which is t- on Tuesday, you are actually not in the cold of Illinois where you grew up. You're actually in Arizona, I believe. Yes, sir. So I, uh, you know, for a couple of years, I've, I've thought about getting outside of Chicago so that I can throw outside to get prepared for spring training. And, uh, this year was the year that I made that change. And uh, Alan Thomas, who's does my training for strength and conditioning, moved down to Arizona and I was looking for somewhere to go. And instead of doing, you know, lifting remote, uh, I decided to come down here and work out with him and, and Alec uh, Thomas and JP Massey and a uh, bunch of guys. So it's been a lot of fun working with them, pushing each other. And obviously with Alec being there, having a big leaguer in, in the group, it's, it's cool to be able to ask questions and have a friend like that. Yeah, Alec is a is a pretty high profile young player. Are you throwing to him at all? Uh, so he'll stand in and, and just kind of see stuff when I get off the mound. But in terms, we're we're still a couple weeks off of live abs or, or a week or two off live abs. So right now we're not swinging it, just kind of tracking. So you're not getting any feedback from uh, Alec on your stuff? Just just verbally, just hey, that came out like a heater, or uh, hey, that was sharp, or. Hey, was that pretty good? And he'll be like, honestly, no. <laughs> I'm like, all right, cool. <laughs> so yeah. it, it's honest feedback. It's good stuff. And so I, I, I learned from a good set of eyes there for sure. No, honest feedback is the best kind of feedback. Yeah, let, let's talk pitching, Quinn. You know, I mentioned we talked in uh, 2019. Uh, we then talked again a little over a year later. I think it was January of 2021. How have you evolved since those two conversations? I definitely think I've learned what's what makes me good, and that's being in the strike zone and throwing to contact and allowing my defense to work behind me. And I know that uh, that helps me stay into games longer, and, and that's always been a goal of mine. And, and through pitching in full seasons, I've understood the team aspect of having a starter go into the sixth or seventh and getting you know those bullpen guys a couple of innings off uh, that night and then being able to be stronger the next night. And so like those little team aspects, I feel like I've learned a lot more. Whereas yes, like I know where, you know, the four seams and and curveballs need to be and and the strikeouts and stuff like that, but being able to pitch deeper into games, being able to help the bullpen out wherever I can, I found those things, you know, 
coming to the forefront of, of what my goals are for every game is it wasn't necessarily going out and trying to punch out, you know, 10 guys. It was, Hey, if we can work into the seventh and, and keep a game, you know, close for, for our team, you know, two, one, zero runs, something like that, then we're going to have a chance to win. And, and our guys are going to be in a better position to do well, you know, going forward. And that's, that's what I think is, is, is a huge role of the starter rather than just, you know, going out and punching everybody's ticket. And I think, if I can do both, that's when I'm going to be the best version of myself. Is going uh, deep into games a Pirates organizational philosophy? Because I know that a lot of clubs develop their guys to go all out, and they don't worry about them throwing more than you know three, four, five innings in the minors. I'm not sure if it's necessarily an organizational philosophy, but it's been a goal of mine. Is that you know after seeing what Sandy Alcantara did this year, like that's obviously an incredible uh with the Cy Young like that's an incredibly high ceiling to to look at but ultimately that's where I see myself is you know just eating a, a whole lot of innings and pitching really good baseball and keeping my team in games and so I've seen that I pitch better when I'm in that mindset rather than a selfish and I wouldn't call it selfish that's not that's not true but more of what, what the way I would describe it is like trying to get strikeouts and trying to almost put up numbers rather than just kind of letting the game, you know, be the game and taking what we can get uh, wherever we can get it and not making it too complicated. So that's where I found that I pitched the best as Quinn Priester uh, mentally. So, and, and I understand that the goal is going to be to, you know, continue to get better and to keep striking more guys out. Don't let the ball get in play. You know, that's the only time, you know, they don't have a chance to get on uh, and those things. But I think that's just going to come with me knowing myself even more and even more and and refining my process. You mentioned uh, four seamers a a moment ago. Where are you in terms of four seamers and two seamers? Yeah, I recall that when when we originally spoke, you said you really liked your, your, I think you called it a sinker. And that I think you said you needed to get to improve the spin efficiency of your four. Yeah, and that's definitely still a work in progress. I think uh, I've I've fallen in love with the sinker over the past you know two years. It's done a lot of good things for me. It's gotten so many ground balls, so many double plays, and just kind of it's that get out of jail free card that I try to use. Um, and sometimes it definitely gets me in trouble. The hitter knows it's coming, but sometimes you know more often than not, even when they know it's coming, I'm I'm still getting my rollovers and ground balls. So I've been using the four seamer more to righties. Uh, and a way to lefties to kind of run it off the plate to then pair with a changeup, but to righties just kind of get it in on their hands, which opens up a way. It opens up some sliders for me, and I've noticed that that's just been a much better fastball. But with that being said, the four seam has shown uh, when it's good, it's really good, and when I do spin it well at the top of the zone or wherever you know the intent is to throw, I'm getting the foul balls back. I'm getting you know just not as consistent swing and miss as I'd like, but I know it's there, and it's just you know it's not become a fantastic pitch overnight. It's going to take a lot of work, but I know with the way that I do work, I'm confident it's going to continue to get better. And it's going to be a pitch that's better for me this year than it was last year. And next year, it's going to be better for me than it is. And, and, you know, it's just going to be a process. And so I'm excited to keep working with it. Um, It's definitely getting better. And I think when we add a little more velo back into it and start to feel a little bit better uh, in that way, it's going to continue to play up and, and it's not going to be as much of a a criticism, which is, but it's good. It's good. It's the thing I definitely need to work on the most. And I'm, and I love working on it. It's a fun pitch to, to throw. And then 
Uh, I think it'll also open up that really good curveball that I've got. So I think it's ultimately uh, it's just going to benefit me the better I get with it. And with your arm slot and uh, approach angle in mind, you know, which is the more natural pitch for you? Is it the two-seamer? For sure. It's definitely the two-seamer. I kind of get my hand on top of it better. And and with the approach angle, a little bit more tilt to it to, to have a little bit more depth. So I think that's that's definitely my better fastball. That's the fastball that I feel the best with. But, you know, who knows? There might be a day where the four-seam feels incredible and we just start throwing that thing at the top of the zone. It starts working great. And I'm, uh, I know it's just kind of a day-to-day thing, but most days, you know, 99% of the days, that, that two-seamers feels great. And what is the movement profile on your, your two-seamer, Quinn? Is it a true sinker or is it more, you know, arm side run? So uh, from what I remember, I, I normally don't the, – the feedback that I look at isn't necessarily like a Rapsodo or a Trackman feedback. It's a hitter feedback. If the hitters aren't seeing the pitch well or if I'm, not, if I'm getting the results that I want to out of a pitch, I won't necessarily go back and look at the spin rates or the numbers just because if I'm getting the results I want, ultimately those things don't matter. I'm doing something right to get good hitters out. But what I I think it's, you know, between 8 and 10 vertical, maybe 8 and 11 or 12 vertical, and then 15 to 18 horizontal. The four seam at its best is 18 inches vertical with 10 inches horizontal. And so that's that's the separation uh, of the two fastballs there. That's, that's a, in an ideal world. But I think right now four seam averaging out at like 15, 16, which is pretty average. And you mentioned velocity. Where was the velo of your fastball this past summer? I think it was like three to four, but I know that I have more in me. Need to gain weight, uh, need to move a little bit better. And and I feel like I'm definitely on the uh, on the right path right now, getting back to that spot. But uh, I think, you know, I definitely have the ability to be 96, 97 type of guy. That will definitely help, uh, you know, the the profile of the four seam, especially the two seam, I think will just continue to get even better at a higher velo. And where were you, Quinn, health-wise this past year? I believe you got a late start. I think it was an oblique injury. Yeah, so uh, last day of spring training ended up hurting my oblique, and that took me out for two months in the beginning of the year. But then we took that time down at Pirate City with uh, Vic Black, and he's one of our – he's a rehab throwing guy, and he's the best. And so we got, you know, two months in of good work and great conversations about pitching and just talking about uh, the movement stuff, the pitch sequencing, and and I think that really helped me – hit the ground running when I got into the season. I want to say that was like June, but uh, I want to say June when I got into the season, that's when, you know, got back from that oblique injury and never really looked back and pitched from, you know, June through November 11th in the fall league. And your curveball is your your best pitch. I believe you're rated as having the best curve in the system. I think Mike Burrows at some point has been rated as having the best breaking ball in the system. You guys played together. So, you know, can you compare your curveball to Mike's? Yeah, I. it hurts to say, but Mike, I think, has got a better one than I do. He spins the absolute crap out of it. And it's just like, it's extremely sharp. Like playing catch with Mike, when he throws his curveball, it at one, it comes out like a fastball. So you almost flinch because it looks like it's coming at your face. And then there's a second flinch when it looks like it rolls off of like the table and just drops straight down. 
and it almost buries or it almost drills your ankles. So it's really uh, Mike's curveball is really really fun to play catch with, and I can't I got to imagine it's really not fun to see in the box. So if you were to ask me, I think Mike's got a little bit better of a curveball than I do. And he throws the absolute crap out of it. He's an incredible, he's an incredible pitcher. Uh, and I can't wait to see, you know, what this year has in store for him. Yeah. Are there any any other pitchers that you played with in the system who throw something that, you know, you maybe you play catch with or just watch and think, man, I wish I could do that. I wish I could throw I, that pitch. I think everything Ortiz, Luis Ortiz does. I'm like, dang, I wish I could throw 101 mile an hour sinkers. So like Ortiz is one of those outliers where he just kind of goes out and is just so talented. He's so good. He's such a great teammate where it's just so fun to watch him go out and work. And I think Ortiz is one of those guys that I wish I could steal, you know, his velocity almost to where, and his rhythm, he just is such a, he's a fun guy to watch. I was it was great to be able to go up to double uh, A and see him. But other than that, honestly, I really like where my stuff's going. I uh, I have a lot of faith in in what I'm doing and, and the places that, you know, I think I can get to, you know, with the direction of, of what I'm doing. Because I think the the sinker slider change up pair is really, really good for me. And, and then the four seam curveball pair is is going to continue to get better. And like you said, it's I'm pairing, uh, you know, my best one, which I think is my curveball with uh, that four seam that's continuing to get better. And, and the better it gets, the better the curveball is going to get, which is an awesome thing to think about. Did you get a chance to play with uh, Henry Davis this past year? I did. Yeah, I played with Henry a lot in double uh, in A. And then last year, I got a chance to play with him in high A uh, right after the draft. And what can you tell us about uh, Henry Davis? Not that I guess that people don't really know about Henry Davis, but what is it like to play with him and to throw to him? He's just prepared, man. He's such a, like, he loves the game a lot. And he's always prepared. He's going home. He's thinking about the ABs of that day and what he could have done differently and what he could have done better. And then he's communicating that with the staff and, and, and letting us know what, uh, the mistakes that we made the day before, you know, whether that's him, whether that's us and, and how we can learn from it. And he's so like detail oriented about those things. And he's, and about uh, like the game plan. It's just, it's a really cool thing for, for people to see, you know, how focused he is and how, and, and he definitely brings this intensity to the field to, you know, he, he likes to have fun, but he doesn't like nonsense. So uh, it's definitely a powerful individual and, and somebody that that works his ass off for everything that that he gets. And so it's really, really cool, uh, you know, to have Henry around and have his perspective. So you may be throwing to Henry in the big leagues in the not too distant future. Somebody you were unlikely to throw to because he was taken in the rule five draft is uh, Blake Sable. You should mm-hmm. talk to, about Blake a little because I had an opportunity to talk to him during the Arizona Fall League. And he's uh, quite the engaging individual. He is. Blake's awesome, man. I, I'm, you know, I'm really happy for him, really sad for us because he's a great player. and He just brings energy and he brings uh, a really big bat to any lineup he's going to be in. He loves to have fun and, and, and he's just, you know, very, you know, team forward guy, always wanted to hear you out, always wanted to talk almost too much sometimes, but we love him and we wish nothing but the best. But man, he's a really special player. Uh, that bat of his is one that I'm not looking forward to facing, you know, in the big leagues, but it is going to be a really fun, uh, really fun battle once once I do see him again and 
and he's a great guy. You know, I wish nothing but the best for him and his family. It looks like he's going to get an opportunity to do some special things this year. Speaking of uh, facing guys, Quinn, you certainly faced a lot of good hitters this past summer. Who among them stands out the most? The guy that you knew that you really didn't want to make a mistake against? So in the fall league, it'd be Jordan Walker. It, honestly, that the top three of that Salt River line, it was Walker, v, it was, it'd go Lawler, uh, Veen, and then Jordan Walker. And it was those three guys. I was so fired up. Like every time, you know, I saw that lineup and I saw those three guys at the top, it just made me excited because like at the end of the day, those are the types of players that I want to be beating consistently and so when, when I saw those guys, you know, at the top of that lineup and I was going to get a chance to face them two, hopefully three times, uh, it was just, you know, I got excited for the battle. And I think, you know, Lawler and, and, and Veen are both, you know, menaces on the base path to where, you know, if those guys get on, they're already a threat to get in scoring position or, or score on, on something funny. And then Lawler, he doesn't even have to try. He can just get into that power so effortlessly. So, you know, it, it, it doesn't matter if it's two strikes or not. Like, even if he's, you know, not given his full swing, it's still got a chance to leave or or find a hole or find a gap somewhere. So those guys were, were definitely guys that you knew if you made a mistake to. Uh, it wasn't going to end well. But it was also those guys that, you know, you just, you know, you want that competition because that's what's going to get you better. That stress of those at-bats are going to, it's going to lessen and lessen. It's going to become normal, and and that's going to become the job. So it was really exciting to see those guys out in the fall league. Did you get a chance to uh, talk to those guys much and get to know them? Not a whole lot. I got a chance to talk to Jordan a little bit for that Fall Stars game, and he's just a really fun, you know, fun guy. Like, I just – just seems like he's super laid back. Uh, game kind of comes easy to him, doesn't – let a whole lot stress him out, let alone it was a fall stars game. So I'm not sure if it was the most uh, high pressure situation, but, you know, from what I've heard, they're all great dudes, great, uh, you know, great players for sure. And it's just, I'm excited to be able to, you know, face those guys for the next few years at the very least. Who are you most uh, looking forward to facing in the big leagues, Quinn, that is already uh, established in the big leagues? So I, growing up a Cubs fan, that 2016 team holds like a very special place in, in my baseball memories. And so Chris Bryant and Anthony Rizzo are like those guys who I want to face because that's who I grew up watching and that's who I grew up thinking they were the best. So like those two guys stick out, Javi Baez sticks out to where it's like, shoot, Wilson Contreras. Like I've, I've grew up watching these guys. These are the guys that all my friends, you know, love too. So I really want a chance at them and, and, you know, a chance to beat them. So it's, uh, those are the guys that I think about whenever, you know, I close my eyes or, and, and that's how it's been, you know, since I was 14, 15. And being a Cubs fan, uh, Quinn, I'm certain that when you face Jordan Walker, he being in a Cardinals uniform, there's maybe a little more incentive there to beat the Cardinals. Just a little, for sure. It's it definitely, uh, you know, you see red figuratively and literally on that jersey. So it's uh, it, it's a fun competition for sure. I'm glad that I'm, you know, in the division because it's going to be fun, you know, seeing the teams that I, I grew up watching and, and hopefully, you know, beating them all. So, you know, before I let you go, you said you grew up a Cubs fan. Did you also grow up a Chicago Bears fan? I am still a Chicago Bears fan. <laughs> uh, and and i'm a packer fan so uh, oh, i think we, I, I think we can st- we can probably still get along 
But, yeah. uh, you know, neither of our teams uh, are in the postseason. Uh, the Packers should have been. Yeah. So, be, you know, with the with the with the Bears not in, they're not too competitive now. What are your rooting interests uh, right now with the Super so, Bowl coming? So, yeah, up? my uncle, uh, my uncle Paul lives in Philly. So, uh, right now, I'm, I'm cheering on the Birds. So, I'm going. Eagles are my number one, and then I'd probably say if I could choose it, it'd be Eagles, Bengals, because I'm a big fan of Joe Burrow, and he's just a badass. So. I'm a big fan of his, and but I want the Eagles to win for uh, for my uncle out in Philly, for my aunt any, out in Philly. Any predictions? I'm going to say that it's going to be Eagles, Bengals. I'm going to say 31-24 Eagles. I can buy that. I think I'll be rooting for Cincinnati. I have more ties there, but hey, that's it's fair. uh yeah, that's uh that's all football. Um, I know we are a baseball uh, podcast here, so <laughs> yeah, yeah, so let absolutely. Me hit- yeah, let me hit you with one uh, last, you know, baseball question, which is, you know, you said you're excited about the coming season, but are there specific goals for this year outside of just staying healthy? Yeah, I mean, definitely number one is to be a big leaguer. You know, I want to be on our big league team this year. I want to make, you know, a difference. I want to, you know, I want to help the team win games. It sounds so cliche. It sounds so stupid, but you know, that's the reason. I started this whole process to begin with is, is to help the team uh, at the big league level, win big league games and, and start to, you know, trend in the right direction as an organization. And that's something that, you know, I think we all can agree is a goal of ours. It's something that we want to do. We don't want to, you know, have anything hanging over our heads. And so it's uh, that, you know, making a team and, and becoming a part of the team and is definitely the number one goal of the year. And then, Past that, like you said, it's it's stay healthy and, and pitch well. Keep keep learning at every start. Uh, don't let uncontrollables, you know, take me out of approach and and just you know keep on keeping on, keep one foot in front of the other, and and good things will happen. And if you do pitch in the big leagues uh, this year, you will be one of the youngest players, certainly on the Pirates, still being twenty two. So, do you feel like you're twenty two, Quinn, or do you feel like like you are twenty four, twenty five? I think I feel like I'm 24 or 25 and that's, there's definitely like an urgency in my brain that I know other people maybe don't appreciate as much because they go, shut up, man, you're 22. But, uh, you know, I feel like having that sense of urgency is always urgency has always helped me, you know, push to keep getting better and not get comfortable because I have time. So I definitely feel like I'm 24, 25, just because, of the pressure I've put on myself, but you know, the body definitely still feels young. So <laughs> yeah, I, I envy you with that, Quinn. A body that feels young. So yes, hey man, it, it was great to have you on and hopefully I will catch up to you in the springtime down in uh you know when you move from Arizona to uh Bradenton. Absolutely. I appreciate it. I'm uh definitely really excited to get down there and and keep uh keep getting better here cool so thanks again quinn and thanks everybody for listening to fangraphs audio this has been fangraphs audio thank you to ryan thibodeau and quinn priester for joining us and thank you for listening if you enjoyed the program consider recommending it to a friend or two word of mouth helps us out after you have visited the fangraphs.com shop Don't forget to also download and try the official Fangraphs app, free in the Apple Store and Google Play.
If you're at a game or on the go and want to look up those sweet, sweet advanced baseball stats, the Fangraphs app is definitely the go-to mobile experience. And finally, there's the Fangraphs newsletter, the best way to keep up on everything we have going on at the website, free to your inbox. That does it for us this week. Be excellent to each other, and we'll talk to you next time.